spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, October 16th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. In today's text, the author of Hebrews warns the congregation against apostasy, and he encourages them to cling to the full assurance of their Christian hope until the end. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church Friedheim, just outside of Decatur, Indiana. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's always good to be with you all. So we get started today, Pastor Ulmer, talk to us about the book of Hebrews, any context that we need to know to look at this section from chapter 6. Yeah, so so Hebrews is one of those those books, even though we don't know who the author is, it's full of a whole bunch of absolutely wonderful doctrines of the church. I mean, you start off talking about the the supremacy of God's Son with that great passage long ago at many times in, in many ways. God has spoken to us by his prophets, but now these last days have spoken to us by his son. What just what a great um, focus on the absolute supremacy of, of Christ. And then he goes and talks about salvation, talks about Jesus being greater than Moses and all this fun stuff. And then we are getting into a section here where after kind of going over some of these doctrines, the author to Hebrews goes into a section that started in chapter 5 and is now continuing into chapter 6, talking about one specific sin and, and warning against it. And the, the terms that were used kind of in the in the passage leading up to 4 through 12, which we're talking about today, the author's kind of talking about not wanting to rehash uh, elementary uh, doctrines of the church, um, Looking up here real quick, um, foundations of repentance from dead works, faith, instruction about washing, laying on hands, etc., etc. He wants to get into some some more deeper, uh, more mature concepts. And starting to do this, he, he talks about one sin that's particularly dangerous for the Christian, and, and that's the, the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, in the previous text, it was almost a bit of an interlude. He, he'd mentioned Melchizedek in chapter 5, and, and that's going to become a pretty big topic going forward into chapter 7. Uh, but in the last text, he, he really kind of talked about this thought that you, know, you can't be dull of hearing or slow of hearing and the danger of that. And it really seems that what we get in, in today's text then continues to amplify that thought of the great danger of if you become dull of hearing— what is the danger of, of falling away from the faith or apostasy, as, as yeah. we'll talk about today? At the same time, we'll also see within this section some great encouragement toward those who are listening to him, that he does not expect that that's going to happen to them, and rather how, and rather he holds out great hope for the way that this is going to, to turn out with their faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is definitely one of those texts where the author uh, lays out a very sharp two-edged sword. 
um, talking about the dangers of this sin, which he rightly called apostasy. And I know maybe for some listeners, maybe that's a, a normal term that they hear and talk about, maybe, maybe not. But we'll talk about it probably at length today. But then the, the author does seem to have a lot of hope that uh, these people are not going to fall into that trap if they kind of stay vigilant, keep on the path that they're on. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's right, yeah. And I think, well, you mentioned the term apostasy. I've used it. It's maybe not a term that we encounter all that much outside of the Church, and it's maybe not used all that often within the Church. So I know we're going to talk about it at length, but just give us a brief synopsis. What is apostasy? Yeah, so so apostasy is not just faithlessness. It's going from a state of grace, a state of faith, to a state of unbelief. Um, I know that when we get into talking, uh, this text will probably get brought up, um, number one, because I, I put it in the, the show notes, but it, it's a great, great text from John 6 where after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that the people hunt him down, and that he gets into his whole speech about how um, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And in that text contains kind of at least one, one piece of, of the important teaching on, on the doctrine of faith, uh, the, which the opposite doctrine would be like the doctrine of apostasy, where um, you, you see exactly what God's will is because Jesus says it just straight up. This is the will of God that you believe in the one that he has sent. You, you kind of combine this from what Jesus says in other places, like in Matthew, talking about the sin against the Holy Spirit, where you get this, this connection between the principal good work, which is faith in Jesus, and uh, the rejection of the Holy Spirit, which ends up being the big issue uh, at play in apostasy. Yeah. Now, uh, one other thing I think we probably should mention just before we dig into this text is that especially verses 4 to 6 and what we've got this morning are among the most difficult texts in the book of Hebrews, uh, perhaps in the entire scriptures. And this is one of those texts where there's some reason as to why those in the early church were sometimes questioning how to handle this text from from Hebrews. So it's probably just worth, if nothing else, just to acknowledge that, that this is a really difficult text that we're about to read. Yeah, it, it is, because I, I don't know about you, Pastor Apple, but this is always one of those uh, issues that comes up on occasion uh, serving a people in the parish whenever the topic of the unforgivable sin comes up. Yeah. Um, you get people who who for some reason are motivated to, to ask their pastor about what is the unforgivable sin, because I my, my guess is because they're concerned that they have committed it. And, yeah. and generally speaking, when, when people come to their parish pastor and say, Pastor, I'm worried about this thing. Have I committed it? The, the answer is generally a quick no, because you're talking to me. That's right? Great. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's the quick answer, is is that if you're asking your pastor because you are concerned that, have I committed it and I'm, I'm in danger, then no, you have not committed no, you this have. sin. Yeah. No, you yeah. have not. So so you, you you have that kind of parish pastor experience laid on top of this exceedingly difficult text talking about the absolute terrible ramifications of apostasy and why 
all, all Christians, and as a Lutheran pastor, I, I always hesitate to use this word because of its connotation, ought be very on guard of protecting themselves against this grave sin. Yeah, I, I think bringing up the pastoral concerns that are often brought to bear on this text is important just for the text itself. Uh, Dr. Kleinig suggests, and I think he's probably right, that this is a sermon being preached by a pastor, and so yeah. he's got pastoral concerns as he's preaching this. So I, I think keeping that in mind will help us to get a handle on what is a difficult text to hear, to understand, uh, but one that I think will ultimately push us toward the hope that the author will express toward the end of the text. So, for our consideration today, we have Hebrews 6, beginning at verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have, been, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is our text for today. That's Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 12. All right, Pastor Elmer, so let's, let's talk about verses 4 to 6, jump right into that difficult section. Uh, the writer starts, It is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. He uses several phrases to describe these people. Once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and so forth. Take us into who he's talking about in, in this warning that he's giving. Yeah, so so Pastor Apple, thank you for bringing this up because this first section is very, very important to understand. And at least I think for me, and and you can agree or disagree with me as you as you please, the important part here is to understand that this very first sentence is conditional. Um, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So this is not a statement and teaching that is just kind of broadly uh, broadcast indiscriminately into the world. This, the author, the preacher, is talking about a specific group of people who are characterized uh, by the, the, the verbs that come after this, as you said, who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavy, he, heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the ages to come and then fallen away. So it's people who have experienced this group of things and then fallen away from it. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, he's doing what you might call casuistry in that sense. Yeah. He's bringing up a specific case that he is warning against. Correct. And then the next question I think is obvious. Well, who in the world is that? Okay, yeah. So that's, yeah, right. It is impossible for this group of people... 
let's talk about who those group of people are. And so in the case of, we can just take it one phrase at a time, those who have once been enlightened. Yeah, so I think here, in in the Christian context, in, in remembering your catechism, which for some reason, every time I do this program with you, brother, something in the catechism gets brought up, thanks be to God, amen? As it should, that's right. <laughs> In, in the third article of the creed, we, we learn why it's important for the Holy Spirit. And, and the reason why we need the Holy Spirit, as we confess, is because it is impossible for us to come into faith in Jesus Christ on our own. So, how do we come to faith? This is the job of the Holy Spirit who calls, gathers, and... Enlightens. Enlightens. That's right. So who who is this preacher talking about? He's talking about people who have uh, received the the gift of faith, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we might call them, in in very loose terms, people who in the past were believers. Right. So and and just to dig into that imagery a, a little bit of being enlightened. You can think through, for example, in the Gospels, where those who are blind receive their sight, yeah. and that's certainly a physical gift that Jesus gives to those who are blind that he encounters, but it also ends up showing something about what it means to have been spiritually blind and then being brought to truly see. That's a theme of John chapter 9, for example. Yeah, and and Jesus talks about making making blind those who can see and um, right. allowing to allowing sight to people who are blind. Right, talks about right. um, scripture. Talks about those who are walking in darkness; they've seen a great light. Yep. Uh, yep. Talking. Yeah. Uh, Saint John talks about uh, people having fellowship with God, not not having anything to do with darkness. Right. Uh, right. Doing the works yeah. of light. Right. So this is the same theme that the the author of Hebrews is bringing up when he describes Christians as those who have been enlightened. We even see how this is an image the church picks up in its baptismal liturgy still today, that there's usually a baptismal candle given upon that gift of the Holy Spirit being received by that person in baptism. They are enlightened by the Spirit in baptism. Yeah, and as a a fun aside, and since you brought it up, uh, for all of you out there who still have your baptismal lights, they're there for you to light every year on your baptismal birthday to remind yourself of your your status, your um, identity that has been given you in baptism as an enlightened child of God. As a practical question, Pastor Ulmer, what do you do if your candle runs out of of wick if you've lit it all those years? Can you get uh, it? I'm, I I actually don't know that the answer to that as a as a <laughs> actual casuistry question. I've never run into that circumstance. I don't know where mine no one's is. Ever asked me that either. Yeah. I think I think if that has happened, then talk to your pastor. I'm imagining you can get a you can get a new one to light in remembrance of your baptism every year. But as a I, I would practice. say that I would give you one. That's right. And I think I think your pastor will be overjoyed to hear that you've been lighting it all those years to the point that you've you've run out of wick and wax. Yes. Absolutely. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. All right, so so we're talking again, the case of those who have once been enlightened, now who have tasted the heavenly gift. This thought of tasting is going to come up again, actually comes up twice here. Talk to us about, about that that phrase. It does. In, in reading the, the commentary, uh, Dr. Kleinig's commentary on this, the, the CPH one, he, he made a very good point to bring up that this word taste uh, does come up two times, and is a very loaded theological word. Um, I think you can say at least two things about it. 
number one is something that I already briefly mentioned uh, in the introduction here having to do with Jesus's discourse with the people in John 6, um, where Jesus is teaching them what it means to have a part of him. And that part of that uh, communion with him is eating his body and drinking his blood, tasting Jesus. Uh, the second part of this, I think, is a direct um, it's it's a direct um, picture of communion. So these these are people who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and are participating in the life of the church. Part of that, from the beginning of the church in Acts two, contains uh, the gathering around the breaking of the bread or the celebration of Holy Communion. Yeah. Okay. So tasting in this case, tasting the heavenly gift seems to be referring to the gift of the Lord's Supper. There's yeah. places in the scriptures, for example, Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, where it seems like that tasting has to do with experiencing on a more broad level. But as you brought up the context in John chapter 6, and, and thinking about this as a sermon preached in the divine service, this tasting of the gift here certainly would seem to refer to you've received the fellowship of the Lord's Supper. So you've been yeah. enlightened. The Holy Spirit has come to you and brought you out of the darkness so that you see through faith in Christ. You've experienced, you've tasted the heavenly gift of the Lord's body and blood at his table. Again, this is the, the case that he's talking about. The next, the next attribute, you have shared in the Holy Spirit. How does that keep building? Yeah, I mean— there's so there's so many things that can be said about this. I mean, part of what it means to be in in the church is you have the one faith, one spirit, one baptism. I mean, this is this is big stuff because part of what what makes us church is we understand uh, the gift that the Holy Spirit is that the Son comes and and sacrifices Himself on the cross. He defeats death on Easter, he ascends into heaven, and then one of his essential works is the sending of the Spirit, which goes out, enlivens people, and then binds them together into the one holy Catholic small scene apostolic church. Um, so I, I think maybe one way of phrasing this is what we're dealing with is a people who have been fully brought into the church. They have uh, been converted by the work of the Holy Spirit. They've been baptized. Uh, when they have uh, been catechized in some way to be found, uh, for lack of a better term, worthy of receiving the Lord's Supper, and then they have participated in that meal. Um, and in doing so, they've quite literally become a piece of, of the one Church of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, so we again, you brought up the explanation from the third article, but even just the third article itself, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Those gifts as a part of the third article are yeah. what we receive right now. These people that the author's talking about are full participants in all of those aspects of the third article. Yeah. That uh, very good way of thinking about it. And, and thanks for just bringing up the third article itself, because that the meaning of it almost has no bearing unless we understand what's explaining. Well, and, and then I just the reason I would, as you were talking, thinking through the third article, 
he he's bringing up people who've experienced again the third article up to that point the forgiveness of sins mm-hmm. and he wants them to continue in that lest they lose what comes after that the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting yeah. you know i mean so he he wants them to receive the fullness of the third article they've got this part keep going until the end as, as he'll say later keep persevering in this hope until the end so that you receive the fullness of the third article get all the way to the amen amen yeah Good, good. Okay, so again, we've got baptism, baptismal language in being enlightened. We've got Holy Communion language in tasting the heavenly gift. Third article, shared in the Holy Spirit. Then finally in verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So here we have that word taste again, probably have some connotations or some connections to Holy Communion, but maybe a little more broadly here. Take us into this last phrase. Yeah, so one one thing that has become a, I don't know if you would call it a a preaching stool of mine or a soapbox or whatever you would call it. As, as I found myself in, in my circumstances uh, being a, a parish pastor for 13 years, is one of the unique things that kind of separates the Lutheran way of doing theology that we ought not lose uh, to our peril and and when I speak that I'm I'm I believe I'm channeling the same types of thoughts as the as the preacher of Hebrews four, is we do have a very strong doctrine of the sufficiency of God's word. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the sacraments, we have baptism, and we have holy communion, where God does work His grace for us in physical means. Uh, he connects His. Uh, promises to water and to bread and to wine, where it gives us those wonderful gifts. And at the same time, um, we we believe that that God's word is sufficient in all things for life and for faith. Um, we we ought not ever forget that because there's always a temptation in the church by by people who are very well meaning. To, to look for means and to look for trends and to look for teachings uh, outside of God's word. Um, and while these things may look like they bring human success sometimes, and I think we could probably chat about that for eons, uh, I'm guessing you've experienced that stuff too as a parish pastor. Sure. Yeah. Um, we, we are people who, who kind of live and die on the hill of the sufficiency of God's word, and that sufficiency is for everything. It's for our salvation. It's for the provision and the salvation of the church. It's for the growth of the church. It's for the education of our kids. Um, it's for our entire life as Christian people. And, and I think that's kind of what the author is getting at, tasting the goodness of the Word of God. It's not just good, it is all-sufficient. Yeah, yeah. I, the language of tasting God's Word brings to mind a couple of the prophets where they they talk about, and the, and the Psalms as well, where the Word of God is, is talked about as something that you digest inwardly, and even what Ezekiel has given that scroll to eat very literally is a sign of this. You know, yeah. tasting that the the Lord's word is good, and as you said, it's sufficient. This is what you need. You've experienced this, dear Hebrews, and and in experiencing that, you know, just reading there, you've also experienced. You've tasted the powers of the age to come. Mm-hmm. So, thinking about again yeah. the third article, 
Right? The, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, though you know, we still live in this mortal body and we await its raising, we've already experienced the power of the age to come even now. We, we have that eternal life already, even in the midst of the not yet. And so, I mean, again, these are, right. these are people that have experienced the fullness of the third article that he's writing to. Yeah, and I guess chan- channel a little bit of Pastor Jonathan Fisk here. Um, because Christ has uh, overcome the grave, you and I as Christians, we are immortal now. We, we, are, we do have the first taste of that truth that will be completely revealed when Christ our Lord returns. Yeah, yeah. So again, he's doing some, some casuistry here. He's talking about, in the case of those who are Christians, they have experienced and been given all of the gifts of Christ. The Holy Spirit has come and enlightened them with his gifts in word and in sacrament, the word of God, which is sufficient for all these things. That's who he's talking about. And in their case, then, if they have fallen away. That's where the apostasy starts to come in. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's, that's kind of the danger because they have all of God's good stuff. He has claimed them, he's put his name on them, and then for them to reject that and walk away um, not only does great harm to them, which it does, I think you could say it does the greatest harm to them, um, in doing so, they actually commit grave, grave sin against Christ himself. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is going to warn about as he continues on. We'll pick up more of this section on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Matt Ulmer this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 16th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12 with Pastor Matt Ulmer. He serves at Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church, Friedheim, just outside of Decatur, Indiana. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we're talking about this casuistry that the writer of Hebrews brings up. Those who have fully experienced the third article gifts from the Holy Spirit, if they fall away, that's what he's talking about. We were talking about this idea of falling away. Uh, talk to us about what this what this might entail. It doesn't sound like this is kind of the the slip of the tongue, uh, an unintentional sin. It sounds like it's a pretty specific situation that he's got in mind. What does it mean to fall away here? Yeah, here I think 
the really, I think Dr. Kleinick brings this out very, very well in his commentary when he focuses on these two verbs uh, talking about in verse six, but since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Um, this, this is one of those past, one of these verses in this text, I think is particularly difficult because kind of on first reading, uh, you ask, ask the question, well, how can you, by rejecting Christ, stick him on the cross again? Uh, can we re-crucify Jesus? And the obvious answer to that question is? Not not like you're talking about. No. We, so we, what does he can't. mean? So what is he talking about? Uh, just have it in front of me. This this is what Dr. Klein says. He says, apostates do not, of course, physically crucify him. But they side with those who did crucify him and approve of those who did so by rejecting his claim to divine sonship. Um, I think understanding in, in that way, by, by falling away from the faith once it's been received, uh, what you are, are doing is, A, siding with the people who did crucify Jesus. Why did they crucify him? Well, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah that God had promised from of old. Um, they didn't believe that he was a uh, Yahweh taken flesh for the salvation of human beings. Uh, they didn't understand that he was the fulfillment of their religion being uh, Judaism. Instead, they thought he was uh, a troublemaker, uh, a liar, a blasphemer. And, and because of that, they were able to unjustly get him killed. Uh, in this way, by, by rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, they are participating in that same rejection of God's plan of salvation. So what about the other part of that phrase, holding him up to contempt? Yeah, this was something where, I'll be completely honest, when I got assigned this text and I read it over the first time, I was like, man, this is this is tough stuff. I don't know exactly what to do with it, but this is one of those things where when you're coming up with Bible studies, you, you sit down and you read the text and you, you use resources and I also think Dr. Klang has a really, really good point here. And he says, thus they also keep putting him to public shame out of fear that they would be exposed to public shame if they were to confess him as God's son. I, I think in the context of understanding Hebrews as a sermon, this makes a lot of sense because one of the things that people in the church are going to experience um, is a pressure from outside of the church, pressure from the unbeliever, pressure from the pagan, pressure from uh, a believer of another false religion. In the case of the Hebrews, probably significant pressure from the Romans, who I believe we've talked about at length in the Roman or in the Revelation 13 episode. Um, that confessing the name of Christ in the history of humanity has not traditionally been a popular thing. And there would have been significant pressure inside of society to um, reject the name of Christ in order to get a favored or at least a not persecuted uh, status in society. So one of the motivations that the one who has received the gifts of the Holy Spirit has become a full participator in the life of the church, one of the reasons for them to give that up is for a more comfortable life on this side of eternity. And mm. that's a dangerous bargain. Right, right. So again, the, the situation he's got in mind is someone who has been fully 
immersed in the life of the church. They've received the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all the third article gifts. They're even experiencing the age to come in part right now. They give all of that up. They deny all of that. Again, we're not talking about a oops, I sinned moment, but a, a deliberate denial of the faith to the effect that we sought, we would side with those who crucified Christ and would hold him up to contempt in the world today. That kind of denial from one who had been involved in the church and received the, the fullness of the gifts, what he says then about this, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. And here's where, if it ha- wasn't difficult already, this is really where the difficulty lies, mm. is understanding what this means. So help us with that, Pastor Ulmer. Yeah, so I think there, there's a couple, at least a couple things that can be said about this. Number one is all things are possible with God, okay? We, we can't forget that. So I think at least part of what this text is teaching and what the, the different commentary I've read have said is, in this case, for human beings, it's absolutely impossible to bring this kind of person back into the fellowship of the church. By all human work, by all human reason, by all human uh, type of pitch, um, it's not possible to bring them back if they are in this specific condition. Yeah. Okay. That's one way to look at it. Are there are there other ways to to consider this? I think the other way to consider this is is also connecting it to two other very very difficult parts of scripture, at least two very very difficult parts of scripture. This is where in in the middle of rejecting God's work, God does harden people's hearts against Him. You see this, of course, in Pharaoh, and you see it in Judas, where because of their rejection of God's uh, plan of salvation, it becomes impossible for them to repent. Um, mm-hmm. That that work of repentance just never becomes a part of their life again, and and that ends up being the pro- the big problem. Yeah, and I, I think the the example of of Pharaoh, or even maybe the example of, and this isn't where necessarily where God hardens people, but rather He lets them have what they've asked yeah. for would be the example of Israel wandering in the wilderness, because the writer has brought this group up previously in his sermon. So you think about those who who wandered in the wilderness. Before they started wandering, the Lord said, go take the promised land. They said, no, can't do it. And he said, okay, then then you won't. They, They didn't take the gift of God that he put in front of them, and that was the only gift there was. And so when they rejected it, it was impossible for them to have another way because there was only one. Yeah. And, and I think maybe that provides then a, a parallel. And I think Dr. Kleinig in his commentary brings this out in a way that I, I don't know that I thought about it quite in these terms. The, the impossibility of repentance here is that if you're going to have that gift and then say, nope, I don't want it and deny it completely, well, there's no other gift there. There's no other way to repentance. And so if you reject the only way that God gives for repentance, then it's impossible for you to have it because you've yeah. rejected the one thing that he had for you. Yeah, I mean, that that's a really, really good way of thinking about it. And that kind of goes to our teaching of the exclusivity of Christ's work. Um, that work is for all people, but it is the only path. Right. 
And right. if, and if this you is think where... that there's another way, you're just going to end up in a, in a real tight spot. Exactly, exactly. And this is where the, the pastoral concern that you brought out toward the beginning of our conversation about the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the sin that's unforgivable, as Jesus talks about in the Gospels, it's a, it's a continued rejection, an ongoing, stubborn, deliberate rejection that I, I don't think this text from Hebrews 6, again, given what is said elsewhere in the Scriptures, means that if you've apostatized that it's impossible for you sometime in the future to be brought back to faith. But rather, if you've apostatized and you continue in that apostasy, it's impossible for you to be brought into the kingdom of God because there's only one way in, and you've rejected that one way in. So you, you're not getting in if you've rejected that. Yeah, and I, and I think that that rejection might lead to the, the language of hardening, because that's what continued sin does to our yeah. conscience. Um, we 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 reject what God has done, and over time, our conscience does get hardened to that, and that repentance is first uh, not very well received, and then completely ignored, and then you die. Well, and this is so thinking about the the conscience becoming hardened or calloused is another way to think about it. Yeah. The Lord in his word is constantly working to soften our conscience and to remove those calluses so that we do still feel the sting of his law, which is is why again to go back to that way we started our conversation. Yeah. If you're asking your pastor, is this where I am? then that's a sign no. that your conscience is not calloused and is not hardened, and God is still at work, and you are not apostatizing. You're hearing that warning. You're taking it to heart, and, and that's exactly where you need to be. That's exactly where you need to be, because this is it is a hard word. Uh, but again, with that pastoral concern, this is the last thing any pastor wants for his congregation listening to his sermon, Amen. and that's why he says it. Yeah, and on top of that, listener also be comforted in another one of the teachings of, of the Lutheran Church that um, when you're when you're in that position uh, repentance always brings with it forgiveness yeah, there that's right uh, confession always has two parts uh, it never has one it's repentance and then absolution like look at you bringing up the catechism again that's right it's almost like I love the catechism it's a good thing. So it's a, use, Omer, it's a useful tool. That's that's exactly, what I'll say. Exactly. It's a useful if, practical tool for life. I I'm convinced that if if we Lutherans knew and used our catechism more, that would solve probably like ninety two and a half percent of our problems. I, I might even give it ninety two point six. I'd give you a whole another tenth of a point. <laughs> now, Pastor Ulmer, as the, the writer continues in his sermon from verse six, he uses a an illustration, maybe a mini yes. parable of sorts. He talks about rain and two types of land that would receive that lane, that rain. Now take us into verses 7 and 8. Yeah. Now, this is one of those for you listeners out there who love their pastors using illustrations and sermons. This text is for you because he, he uses a beautiful one. And, and the second that I, I read it, my mind went to a text that we, we actually studied together on this program. How about this? When Jesus is teaching in the, the festival of booths, um, during the great day of the feast, when, when Jesus talks about streams of living water welling up, and that stream of living water that he was speaking of was? The Spirit. 
Yeah, the giving of the Holy Spirit. So in this illustration, the, the author of Hebrews uses this image of land that receives good water from heaven, being the Holy Spirit. Uh, for the reader out there, like really, really read verse 7, because it took me a couple reads and reading of the commentaries to pick this out. Um, the land that receives rain from heaven is actually both plots. Um, sufficient rain, sufficient water, sufficient kind of giving of the Holy Spirit falls onto both plots. It's not as if one, the, the, the spirit land gets some water and the other one doesn't get quenched. It, both of them get enough. Um, but in the case of, of the believer, the spirit produces fruit that is good, fruit that is useful, fruit that is desirable for the one who is tending the land. And in the case of the, of in the parable, the unbelieving plot, that the same spirit only produces, generally speaking, we would classify them as kind of fruits of the curse. If you remember like back in, in Genesis 3, uh, when, when God gives Adam the curse of his uh, faithlessness, um, Thorns and thistles are going to be produced, and you're going to eat from the sweat of your brow. Um, there, there are other spots in the Old Testament where these thorns and thistles are spoken out as curses uh, for the people's unbelief. And that's what's going on here. Uh, when, when that gift is poured out, it's, it's not a problem of the spirit. Uh, it's a problem of kind of the, the human condition and, and this falling away from faith. The Spirit yeah. is going to do the work of the Spirit. Thinking again about the way that the the writer talked about the thought of you're crucifying the Son of God again, and the connection, especially then to verse 8, with this thought of the curse that is specifically mentioned there. I, I can't remember if it's in Deuteronomy 22 or 23, where the one who's hanged on the tree is is the one who's cursed. And Paul picks up that in Galatians and says, hey, Christ became the curse for you. Well, if you reject Christ on the cross, and you hold him up to contempt, then the curse is left on you rather yeah. than on him. And I think it, that that fits in nicely with the illustration that he uses here. Yeah, and I was actually, of all things, teaching eighth grade confirmation this morning, <laughs> talking about the attributes of God, that he is both just and he is merciful. And those two concepts seem to be... Uh, Mutually exclusive because a just God always gives to people what they deserve, and a merciful God gives to people what they don't. Well, how can these two seemingly exclusive concepts hold together in an absolutely perfect God? Well, the answer is because Jesus became the curse. Yeah. Uh, the entire punishment for sin was taken out on Jesus so that he could both be just and merciful. Mm. So the writer of Hebrews has given this strong warning concerning apostasy. He's illustrated it with rain falling on two different types of soil. And it seems then that that illustration provides the hinge that gets him then into the section of encouragement. Because he, at verse 9, it sounds like he's, he's acknowledging when he says, though we speak in this way, it sounds like, I know I've just laid a really tough warning against you. So he's, I mean, he's, he's acknowledging the way that he's, he's spoken to his hearers in a, a difficult but necessary way, but then he calls them beloved. 
and he says, we feel sure of better things. So I, I see you. We, he uses himself here, right? I, I see you in the example of the rain that produces the crop and it's cultivated and has a blessing from God. And he now turns to encouragement. So help us to make this turn there in verse nine. Yeah. So this encouragement here is, I think, based on a, a very sincere apostolic desire for these people to continue in the faith that they have been given and to join him and the rest of the saints, uh, the communion of the saints and the, all that stuff in the third article that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, that he wants to see them on that day of resurrection. And he, he seems to have a lot of confidence that they are going to kind of achieve that goal, kind of using the, the words of St. Paul there. Um, so, he, so he goes to encourage them. Um, specifically here, we have a, have a section where he is encouraging to continue in the work of the church that they are doing. Um, and, and this really does seem to be uh, the way that different apostles speak in the New Testament. Uh, Paul encourages, uh, look it up here, he encourages the Thessalonians this way. He encourages the Corinthians uh, in this way. Uh, I, I don't think you, you get it exactly in in James's epistle, but you kind of get the, the same type of thought where works are the produce of faith. So you have people who believe in, in Jesus, who have received the work of the Holy Spirit, that they do uh, manifest that in the fruit of good work. You have warnings uh, against becoming kind of lazy in uh, Revelation, St. John's Revelation, the, the letters to the church. So he's kind of in, encouraging them to, to continue in their faith and to continue in the, the works of the church um, that are good uh, and useful for them and for the communities that they uh, are part of. Mm. Yeah, we, we recently sang in, in worship hymn number 555 in Lutheran service book, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, and stanza nine really does a, a fantastic job of confessing what you just said is, is confessed in several places in Scripture concerning the role between faith and works. So this is, is again, salvation unto to us has come, stanza nine. Faith clings to Jesus' cross alone and rests in him unceasing. And by its fruits, true faith is known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify, works serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is living. And I've always found that stands a particular, a very helpful way of summarizing precisely what you just said and what it seems the author of Hebrews has in mind here when he talks about this, this hope that he has. We, we feel sure of better things because we know your faith and we've seen how that faith has played out in these works that you're doing. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I think I, I mentioned it here, but I, I think one of the, the, the two, I'll say the two kind of clearest uh, examples of this are really St. Paul's commendation of the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul and the author of the Hebrews use very, very similar uh, language talking about being imitators of him, being imitators of the apostles, being imitators of the people who they learned the faith from. Um, mm. This includes that kind of necessary uh, fruit, which is good works. And then... Uh, as I mentioned, uh, in Revelation 2, the, the letter that's written to the church of Ephesus, 
And I know that in, in different kind of uh, cross-study, looking at this text, the, the, the Church of Ephesus wasn't one of the ones that was immediately brought up as one of the examples. But in Revelation 2.5, um, is talking about people who are kind of falling away, getting sluggish uh, with their works and their faith. And then he reminds them, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Um, that that letter to the Ephesians in, in Revelation really emphasizes kind of this kind of multi-pronged truth where you have faith and you have works and you have this sluggishness and, and the path back is not to become hardened, not to rely on oneself, but to to always turn to God and repent. Um, and, th and that seems to make, make sense to me because kind of the Christian faith being broken down very simply is always that call uh, that comes from Jesus's own mouth at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, uh, re uh, repentantly of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Talk more about this thought of, of imitating that you brought up from first Thessalonians and is also present here, the writer here. And I thought, I thought you were just ready to tell us since it's so similar from Paul and first Thessalonians, I thought you were ready to tell us that Paul was writing Hebrews here. I don't know <laughs> if you're, you're stating that publicly or not, I'm but not, I am not stating that even though it was uh, declared on final jeopardy a couple months ago. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. So regardless of, of that, the, the idea of imitating, it, it's brought up here as Paul does in 1 Thessalonians and in other places. Here the, the author says, imitating those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So talk about the, particularly the way that the writer here talks about imitating those with faith and patience. Yeah. Now, I know that we're kind of getting to the end of our time, so I won't spend a whole bunch of time doing this, but I will pastorally encourage all the readers looking forward. If you are a lover of the program of Sharper Iron, read forward in the book of Hebrews. Um, kind of what, what Pastor Apple is talking about here is dealt with absolutely wonderfully at length in that the later part of the book of Hebrews, you have this great by faith chapter where um, the author goes through many, many, many of the, the people of God. I'll even be so bold as to say in Christ Jesus, including the people who are looking forward to uh, Jesus's day. Um, as Jesus kind of mentions in John 8, when he gets all sideways with the, with the people there talking about, uh, you're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> mm, yeah. that, that these people of faith from the Old Testament did everything looking forward to that day because they, they believed God's promises, and that belief was credited to them as righteousness. Mm. Um, I think what he is, he is saying here... And, and then he's going to get into it very deeply later on this book is look at the great uh, forefathers and foremothers of the faith and, and follow their example of faith. When, when God says something, he is faithful. Trust in him above all things.
Yeah, I, I think you're right. He's definitely laying the foundation for where he's going to head later in this sermon, especially in chapter 11 and into 12, where to imitate those who have faith and patience is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, yep. who is the author and finisher of the faith. So again, this is setting the stage for more yet to come in this sermon. As you said, Pastor Ulmer, our time is winding down. We've got about two minutes here. Help us to wrap things up on this text from Hebrews 6 this morning. Yeah, so as we were talking, Pastor Apple, this is one of those texts that is very difficult. Um, have no fear, a little flock, um, because the, the grave sin that is being taught about here um, is one that, if you're listening to this program and, and speaking with your pastor and are concerned about your sins and you're repenting, you're, you're not in this land of apostasy. Um, but also know that... Um, there is always a temptation to fall away from the wonderful gift that we have been given for status and comfort in this life. Um, trust that God will remain faithful to all of his promises. Uh, he has showered you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've been brought into the faith by baptism. You have tasted and seen not not only that the word of God is good, but you have eaten and drank in Jesus' body and blood in the Lord's Supper, and that these things bind you together as that third article church that uh, has the gift of the Holy Spirit and the promise of everlasting life. Uh, never lose heart uh, and be imitators of all of the wonderful uh, saints who have gone before you in the faith that you might, uh, with them, uh, wear the crown of life on the last day. Pastor Matt Ulmer is pastor at Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church Friedheim, just outside of Decatur, Indiana. He has been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 12. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. It's always a pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Hebrews, particularly this chapter, this section of chapter 6, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.